to the Series B Show With your host, Brandon Jones Welcome to the Series B Show With your host, Brandon Jones Welcome to part one of the Jeff Clavier episode of the Series B Show Hosted by me, Brandon Jones uh, Jeff is the founder and managing director of SoftTech VC one of the most prominent seed stage venture capital firms in Silicon Valley. He's invested in companies uh, like Mint, Fitbit, um, Bleacher Report, and the list goes on and on. Um, in part one of the episode with uh, Jeff Clavier, he discusses starting from the bottom of Silicon Valley uh, in the venture capital game, um, taking a large part of his family's uh, net worth and investing in the early stage startups, um, how he connected with Silicon Valley influencers to build his personal brand, and uh, in deal flow, becoming ultimately one of the super angels uh, or the go-to guy for companies raising seed funding in Silicon Valley. So um, he'll, he'll also get into a few of his big hits like Fitbit and Eventbrite as far as uh, investing and some of his big misses, uh, missing Uber, Airbnb, and Pinterest. So I uh, hope you enjoy the show. So Jeff, Jeff is the, the founder and uh, managing director of SoftTech VC, which is uh, basically is known for being making pre-seed and micro VC cool before mm -hmm. everyone else hopped on the on the bandwagon. Um, you know, this guy is a is a, you know, a huge source of wisdom and insight for folks in the valley. Um, he's you know, he has a very successful track record as well. We'll get into that in a little bit. But first of all, you know, welcome to the show, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me, Brennan. Very excited. So um, we we connected after I heard you on a panel and you kind of walked through your your story of getting into VC mm -hmm. um, and you have an interesting path to get there and I, I I'm sure you told this story a million times but what really stood out to me in terms of your story versus other folks is that you bootstrapped your way in um, true which is something that I guess you see a little bit more now but when you were doing it at that time it was something that was that was pretty rare and people probably looked at you and said wow this guy's this guy's nuts. And so you're going to have to prove it by making successful investments and growing into it. I love to hear about that story. Sure. So let, let's just um, step back a little bit and let me give you a bit uh, about my background. Um, so I was born, raised and educated in France. You know, I still have a French accent, <laughs> even after 16 years in the Valley. Uh, what part of France, by the way? I was born in Tours, in the Loire Valley, which is in the center of France, where supposedly we speak the purest French. So my French is actually without <laughs> accent. I have a French accent when speaking English, but uh, not having the accent when speaking French. So did a startup in the financial services market uh, that ended up being acquired by Reuters after five years. I was a CTO, so I ended up uh, running a number of uh, teams and projects for, for Reuters. And in, um, in 2000, after going through the, um, uh, the transition to uh, the euro, uh, the millennium, and putting in place the 35-hour week uh, sort of legislation in, in my shop in France, which disgusted me from working in France and with the French ever again, <laughs> um, moved to Silicon Valley in August of 2000 to become a, uh, a corporate VC. So Reuters had a venture arm called the Reuters Greenhouse Fund that was making kind of a hybrid of uh, strategic and financial investments. They were based in London, uh, four partners, and didn't have anyone on the ground in the valley 
while they had more than 50% of the portfolio in the Valley. So uh, when when the, uh, the the first internet bubble sort of exploded, um, it ended up being sort of a nightmare for them to travel to the Valley all the mm. time. And so they put boots on the ground, me, my boots, uh, and um, that's that's what happened. So can we can we pause there for a second? There's three pieces that kind of sit out. One, you had an engineering background, computer science. Yes. Um, so that, that's an important piece. Second piece, you started off kind of in corporate VC, so mm-hmm. you weren't new to VC in any way. And then thirdly, you were willing to make the jump over to the states yes. from from overseas. So these are kind of like, you know, you, you threw them in the story, but these are kind of decision points that I'm sure contributed to. Um, and and we'll we'll talk about it, I'm sure, a bit later in the podcast about you know what were sort of some of those turning points. Mm-hmm. But essentially, um, throughout my career, I've actually never planned the next move. The next move happened. I took the turn and then said, hey. And so what What really sort of got me into VC wasn't a um, uh, sort of an interest in the venture capital industry per se, because, you know, here we live and breathe VC, right? right. You sort of right. walk uh, up and down university in Palo Alto or, you know, uh, go around South Park in San Francisco and you meet a bunch of VCs every, you know, two or three minutes. Uh, it's not the case in France. And it wasn't the case in France uh, in my time there, and so what really what dro- drove me to uh, take this decision and, and move the family to Silicon Valley was the fact that I really wanted to move to Silicon Valley. Got so it. back in '93, Reuters acquired uh, Technicron Software Systems, which became Tipco, and we started sort of cooperating with those guys. And uh, sorry, '94 and '93, uh, and we started cooperating with those guys, and I started spending spend time here. And I remember the first time. Um, I landed at SFO, went to uh, you know rent a car, um, got the upgrade uh, for a, a Mustang convertible, and drove the Mustang convertible down to eighty, you know, uh, rooftop down. I was like, sold. Damn, <laughs> this is so awesome. Sold, uh, yeah. sold, and then it took us uh, you know some time for my wife and I to find this opportunity. So really moving to the U.S., freeing ourselves from from France, the 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 French thing uh, was really sort of an important uh, driver. And then doing something different. Yes, I have, you know, a couple of degrees in computer science, um, a master of a master uh, in computer science and a degree in uh, research, sort of research degree in um, distributed computing. And so I was really passionate about the theory of networks and real time, you know, information and so, on and so forth, which is what I did for 12 years. But then at some point I said, you know, I'm just done right after leading large projects, having hundreds of people working uh, for me and being, you know, accountable and responsible for huge budgets and mm-hmm. and and products, I just said, you know, it's time for me to do something new. And, you know, it just happened to be sort of being a VC on the West Coast. And so I told my wife, hey, you know, I got this offer. And she's like, you, a VC? <laughs> really? Like, she knows me well. Um, right. And, you know, I said, well, you know, it's, it's worth trying, right? Um, could, be, uh, could be interesting. And so did that. Um, Wait, so- even... even- I have to pause in these sections because there's some important pieces that are kind of you're, you're bringing out. So your wife was supportive of the yes. move. Your wife is no slouch. If, if you could uh, let let the audience know kind of what, what your wife is doing here. Oh, sure. Um, so she um, she has a very traditional sort of uh, French background. She's, she did HEC, which is the best uh, you know business school in, uh, in France. Uh, then she worked in retail. Uh, so she was the marketing manager for uh, the, the, the French Target, if you want. And then in 2000, um, 
we had this opportunity to um, to move, and she said, you know, I'm I'm going to take a break and have our um, second child, um, and then. Uh, after we got uh, our green card, um, she managed to uh, uh, sneak in the uh, the Stanford GSB. Sneak, uh, sneak in. Sneak in. Um, <laughs> she was, I mean, she applied to a um, project management uh, sort of job. Um, there were like 120 people sort of applying for the job. She got it. And now, 10 years later, uh, she runs the Center for Social Innovation at Stanford. Um Impressive is, is the word that comes to mind. Yeah, she's the, she, she's the smart one in the family. So so it's interesting that she was supportive in, in making the move, but she also came here and, and obviously hit the ground running, and, and now she's doing some pretty impressive things as well. So so you, you would agree that having a supportive partner was, was critical to kind of oh, getting sure, to where you are. Oh, sure, absolutely. And, and I think as, as we go through the, the rest of the story, you'll see that without her support, uh, we wouldn't be here. Right. So, you know, did four years um, as a corporate VC. And, you know, I would argue it's kind of a VC. It's not a real VC because you don't have the issue of fundraising. You just, you know, get money from the corporation. And your investment strategy is geared towards satisfying the strategic aspect of the um, the corporation's you know plans as well as financial so returns, and then in two thousand four, I saw the uh, emergence of this next generation of con- you know consumer internet companies, what we end up calling Web two O, and I thought that those were really sort of interesting because a they were delivering a brand new experience um, to uh, to the user. Those were like you know. DHTML, you know, dynamic interfaces, like uh, pastel colors, like very nice. Um, but also they were tremendously capital efficient. These people sort of got off the ground, barely needing any financing. And there was clearly um, a huge funding gap between what the entrepreneurs needed, two, three, four hundred thousand dollars and what VCs if they were investing, you know, we're looking at, at um, uh, writing checks of five to ten million dollars. And so there was a gap and I thought, hmm, this is kind of interesting. And, you know, I'd like to um, to sort of go and, and figure out a way to um, help out. And as, as I um, explained at Togo, what I decided to do is essentially quit uh, the sort of Kashi, but kind of later stage uh, work at um, at Reuters, and essentially become full time uh, and joint investor. And I agreed with my wife, who was you know supportive, that um, I would not look for a job for eighteen months. That I would take two hundred fifty k of our savings, and you know we had made you know some some money at Reuters, but not a lot. So two hundred fifty grand was actually meaningful for it's a us. Big deal. Um, and that I would, you know, give it a go and see whether this works. So what's interesting about this story for, for those in the audience who, you know, may or may not know, in the spectrum of, of VC, you have everything from, from pre-seed to seed to, you know, late stage. Mm-hmm. And, you know, basically the distribution is it's most riskiest the earlier, the earlier you invest. And so you're telling your wife, you know, let's take some of our hard-earned nest egg mm-hmm. and let's deploy it across investments in the, literally the riskiest stage of, of venture capital investing. Yeah, when there was no proof that Web2 wasn't even <laughs> going to work. And then, you know, um, she said, but because, uh, you know, I'm, my background is enterprise software, right? And so um, most of the investments I did were more on the enterprise software or media side. And so she was like, consumer internet, it's not even a thing, right? And so, well, that's the point. And... Lo and behold, she um, supported, you know, uh, 
that decision. And that was actually before she actually had a job at um, at Stanford. So that was even riskier. Yeah. Um, and, you know, started to um, hang out with entrepreneurs. And at the time, um, you know, 11 years, 11 years ago, you had two things. One is um, there wasn't sort of the transparency that exists today in terms of uh, terms, financing strategy, how to raise financing, and so on and so forth. So entrepreneurs were really eager to work with someone who was, you know, from the other side to understand, uh, you know, the way to raise uh, financing. Mm -hmm. And so the way for me to get into the community was to offer to help. So I was hanging out, you know, at, at coffee shops, um, spending time at uh, dinners. I also um, started a, a VC blog uh, in June 2004. Uh, it was a local software only. Um, and the reason for that was that I was going to speak at a um, uh, blogging conference the next day and I was the only speaker without a blog. <laughs> and I just wrote about, you know, financing and so on and so forth. And, you know, I was essentially inspired by uh, Brad Feld, Fred Wilson, uh, David Hornick, who at the time was writing way more than he does today. And, you know, I just thought it was important for us to try and balance you know, this sort of equilibrium of information and knowledge uh, and making the world of VC more transparent to entrepreneurs. Interesting. So you um, had, <clears throat> just to cover, you know, a couple of things that you that you mentioned there, um, you had an opinion, you had a thesis. Your mm -hmm. thesis was there's a gap in mm -hmm. funding. That was number one. Your thesis also was that Web 2.0 was a thing that was coming and you mm -hmm. believed in it. And so you stood behind those two principles and then realizing, <clears throat> okay, here's what I believe. To bridge that gap, information needs to be more uh, transparent and readily available for, for just folks in the ecosystem in general. Well, I thought um, essentially that was a way to build your own sort of brand and access because the whole point of, um, you know, it's good to say, well, I'm going to be an Android investor, but you have to have a theme, you have to have a thesis, and you have to have access. Mm. Because if you don't have access to the best deals, then you will lose all your, all your capital. So how do you build access when you're nobody or worse, when you're an outsider, nobody. Um, because I didn't really sort of know that many people. I mean, I knew some people, but I wasn't part of that community. I hadn't done, you know, Stanford, Harvard, um, hadn't done a startup in the US. So I was starting pretty much in the basement <coughs> yeah. uh, from the standpoint of, uh, of a network, an actionable network for deal flow. And so what you do, you just go and hang out with, um, you know, other people. And the fact that you develop, you know, this voice uh, was actually useful, A, to share you know, uh, point of views and information with the, the community, but also helps you sort of build your access. And I became, you know, a good example is um, before uh, Brad Feld and I became the close friends we're today, we started as blogging buddies. I was basically stalking his blog and I was sort of writing, you know, what I thought were thoughtful comments and everything. And then I would, you know, link my, my posts and it would sort of click, you know, on the link and then come and leave a comment. And, and we became blogging buddies and then we started co-invest um, as, as angels. And then we started, he, he joined us as an LP and eventually we started doing a bunch of deals together. And, you know, that's really interesting. So that, that, that sort of created a, a long, long term, very, very fruitful sort of relationship. But it started as blogging buddies. So you would say that, would you say that that formula still is the formula today? <clears throat> you know, it's, it's a really it's a really great question and I'm, and I'm asked, you know, how what I did is is now, you know, sort of, uh, is it still relevant or not? Um, I think a lot of it 
still works. You have to have a very, very specific sort of thesis. You have to have a, um, you know, a shtick, a reason for entrepreneurs to sort of want to come to work with you. Because, you know, the reality now in, in the environment that uh, we're in, there's way, way more capital available than uh, actually, you know, good ideas. And so capital has become a commodity and therefore entrepreneurs have, you know, tons of sources that they can draw from and the information as well you could you and information create. it feels like you know the entire freaking vc industry is blogging it's right. like you know you need aggregators now to read whatever freaking vcs sort of write which is ridiculous right like sometimes i wish like hey as an industry we're here to build companies right. not like you know media uh you know content hmm. so we're i think we're we're definitely in the you know too much information, too much... Uh, I mean, there's never too much information because it's useful, but it feels like the pendulum has swung too high in terms of, you know, capital sort of raised and and, and people trying to build a voice where it's really noisy. Um, but if you're really focused on a very specific sector and you build this expertise, this, you know, um, reputation around this sector, I think it still works. So you're suggesting nowadays what the opportunity could be is that now that people, the pendulum has swung to the media presentation, blogging, et cetera, someone could just have a very laser focused thesis and mm -hmm. focus on the thesis and creating value for companies. Yes. Rather than kind rather of than being the, the media platform. If Well, if it still works, like if you look at Fred Wilson, uh, if you look at Brad Farrell, um, like, if you look at my friend Mark Suster, who's you know consistently blogging on super interesting sort of topics, they have a very broad platform. They can they can pretty much talk about or write about anything they want, and they will do something interesting, right? Yeah. So they have broad platforms. The same way, Softech now has a very broad footprint in terms of the kinds of things that we invest in. Because you know, for every category, we say, oh, you know, we can do SaaS and marketplaces and uh, connected devices. We have you know. Um, sort of great investments as part of our track record to point that we can actually build those kinds of companies. Right. But if you don't have that today, it's actually, you know, challenging to differentiate yourself from the next 200 guys who also will claim interest in a hot deal. And so it's, um, it's, it's, it's sort of challenging. So, I, so subject matter I'm, I'm expertise glad is now the Subject matter expertise, focus, value add is really what, um, what will get you in the deals. If you don't have the the brand and the track record saying, well, you know, here are the 175 companies right. that we built. Okay, so you did this to get in the door. Mm -hmm. You start to build these relationships with folks via coffees, writing blogs. You build relationships with some key folks where you ultimately we do a start few, collaborating. A few investments. Yep, did a few investments. So what was phase B? Now you're kind of your name's out there. People recognize you as the guy who has who blogs smart things, knows a few people. Um, so I think it, it's the it's it's really not sort of phases. It's more like you get in people's sort of um, calendar, and you know they see you at a bunch of events. So you know the other thing I was I agree with my wife is that I would spend a lot of time at you know dinners and events and so on and so forth. So I wasn't home you know that often, and she was you know she had two young kids um, to um, uh, to take care of, uh, and so. You know, I build those relationships, and as you sort of show up over and over, then people sort of catch up with you and share what they're thinking about or the deal that they saw and thought was interesting. So you basically build that referral network that you know is you know the main uh, deal sourcing activity that um, that we have still today. And I think that the next phase is when the good ideas turn into good investments that turn into good exits. Because 
you know, at the end of the day, what makes a successful investor is, you know, how realizations actually start showing up and people say, oh, you know, this company got acquired, or this company got acquired, and this company got acquired. So I was very lucky that a few of the early investments we made uh, worked really well, really fast. So one of my first investments uh, was Truvio, which was, you know, one of the very first video search engines. Uh, we funded the company in 2005, January 2005. Um, we put in $25,000. The reason why I had access to the deal wasn't because I was sort of an awesome angel investor, but um, the wife of the CTO was a, um, a friend of my wife. They were working together at, um, at school. Uh, they were volunteering. And so she said, hey, you know, I really like Bernadette sort of um, help, help them out and take, you know, 25 grand. <laughs> so you can see how the wife has, has been, you know, uh, enormously integral to our success. Right, right. So, we got in, um, helped the company sort of uh, grow, get the product out, um, doing product sessions and, and, and so on and so forth. And um, AOL acquired them for $50 million, uh, within 10 months and three weeks wow. of us investing. So there was a 17x return in less than a year, which you know, was obviously sort of cool. And that returned more than the 250K budget that wow. we had set. So very quickly and almost like to the day around the 18 month mark, we had sort of a validation that actually I wasn't wasting the family money. Let's and talk about that. Like, time. What did it feel like when you, you had that sense of validation? You had your first exit, you'd taken this risk and, you know, lo and behold, you know, your, your portfolio company exited and mm -hmm. gave you, a, you know, like a, a crazy multiple of 17x. Just walk through kind of what that meant to you. Um, I think it's um, sort of a, a short, you know, high five. So really happy for the entrepreneur because uh, clearly being acquired before you have to prove the product. And, you know, because the multiple was pretty good for everyone, it was it was sort of a, a quick high five. Um, the validation was, hey, the, th the theme in the thesis sort of work. And, you know, yeah, we, you know, haven't, at least I now have, you know, more money uh, in the bank than what I started with, which means I can continue right. going. So right. it was not really sort of satisfaction or whatever. It was more like, okay, I can continue to play again. It was like, right? it was like your equivalent of like break even. It was, it was sort of break, well, validation that I can, like, I had no qualms continuing, right? right? So right. for me, the question is, you know, what do I do? Do I continue? Do I go sort of try and get a job or is it, is it going to work? Um, and because, you know, as I sort of uh, mentioned that um, at the, on the panel, uh, at that time, I was one of the poorest sort of angels in the valley, <laughs> right? Um, and um, therefore the decisions that we're making were really sort of important for the family. So um, that gave me an opportunity to just continue doing what I was, what I liked, you know, sort of doing. And that would also sort of increase the budget that could actually invest in companies. So it was, it was more a bit of validation and a lot of, okay, well, we can continue playing. So you've had some other successful investments. We'll, we'll get into that. But mm -hmm. at that point in time, when you actually had that exit, did the conversation change with other folks who maybe looked at you a little bit skeptically and then they said, oh... No, that's really, I think, you know, the, you can always be lucky, right? And so having one exit doesn't make you a good investor. Having sort of five exits doesn't make you a good investor. I think it's, it's building a portfolio of outcomes and getting the recognition from your peers that 
you're 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 for real, right? Because um, at the be- at the beginning, you sort of have a little bit of the imposter syndrome, which is like, yeah, well, you know, I was on the picture, and so um, uh, I got lucky, and so that's why you really want to uh, keep a very uh, humble profile and and just not you know, self-congratulate or whatever, because you can always be lucky. And luck has a tremendous uh, role in, in, in our industry. So I would say, you know, um, a bit of recognition came in 2006 when um, Business 2.0 uh, released that piece on the Super Angels. So they, they wrote a piece on the Super Angels and there was a picture of the Super Angels and I was on the picture. And <laughs> I felt, you know, same thing, uh, imposter syndrome was like, Dude, so here's Reid Hoffman and Josh Koppelman, and uh, the, the picture was funny. I was actually uh, carrying a, a laptop with Reid Hoffman's sort of face. Um, uh, Fred Wilson was there, so they were. I thought they were all legit, and it was like the only legit person on the uh, on the picture. But that was sort of the first le- the first time that I was sort of singled out as, hey, you know, actually there's there's a track record. There's you know, by that time I had you know four five, six sort of um, uh, outcomes. And, you know, there was a little bit of controversy with, because at the beginning, traditional VCs were ignoring us, right? Then they said, well, those guys, you know, when they invest, they try and flip the companies. So they won't raise uh, Series A or Series B. They will just like try and sell the company immediately, which wasn't the case. It just so happened that we had a few companies that were acquired very early, whether it was, uh, you know, Truvio, Userplane, um, and, uh, and a few others. And, but what what had happened, essentially, you had, we had become the go-to guys for early-stage financing. So mm. suddenly, we had inserted ourselves, you know, the super angels and, and the nascent category of micro-VC funds, you know, became sort of the guys that entrepreneurs went to see, you know, to raise, you know, their seed round, and then we would help them sort of go and raise a Series A. So the, the first... The first sort of real legitimacy, I would say, um, happened in 2007 when, you know, after, so, you know, 20 plus investments, uh, you know, 10 or so exits, um, people started to say, well, you know, why don't you raise a fund? Why don't you mm-hmm. take over money? Because you seem to be doing well for yourself. And, mm-hmm. you know, by that time, I didn't have any issue getting deals because people sort of started knowing me, You're liking branded me, as that guy branded as the guy was, yeah. you know, sort of useful, helpful alongside VCs and so on and so forth. I was being invited by people to sort of join their rounds. So it was actually working handsomely. But the notion of doing, you know, something else, like, turning that that corner and becoming a real VC on my terms was intriguing. And so I had um, a few conversations. I didn't want to spend a ton of time, uh, you know, fundraising, because typically your first fundraising takes, you know, a year, year and a half, uh, two years. And I, didn't, I just didn't want to commit myself to that. And I didn't need to, because by that right. time, I had, game. you know, um, I had made uh, enough... Uh, returns to actually continue investing as an angel it was just working um but you know conversations happened i was um you know chatting with uh josh koppelman who had you know first round capital one in the market so he was he was really sort of one of the very first sort of uh formed uh macro vcs uh, even though the term macro vc uh came up sort of later at that time were called super angel funds which was a misnomer and very confusing <laughs> so josh was um was out with uh first round capital one uh mike Peoples was uh gonna form his fund uh, and so 
you know, there were a few of us making the transition from super angel to micro VCs at the same time. And I was having conversations and it just turns out that um, my first real fund, which we call fund two, fund one is for angel investments, came together really quickly in eight weeks during mm. the summer of 2007. Wow. Um, and it was almost, you know, uh, uh, serendipitous, mm -hmm. uh, where I just had conversation with the right folks at the right time and they said, yeah, well, you know, we're in. And I'm like, what do you mean? What do you mean? Um, and literally it was, it was surreal. And so um, I, um, uh, I had no real, I mean, I had been part of a fund. I knew what the legal structure is and so on and so forth. So, man, but, you know, from a, what does it actually mean to run a venture capital fund? Right. You know, what what do you do? And so I was very lucky to um, to be pointed to very useful resources. Uh, a couple of, you know, CFOs of, of established funds, you mm -hmm. know, sat me down and said, okay, well, this is the gamut of things that you have to um, to do. Uh, I was introduced uh, by Fred Wilson to uh, the v the back office firm that he was using, which I still use uh, today, um, Princeton-based uh, um, uh, VMS, um, the um, my friend, so uh, David Honick and John Callahan at True Ventures uh, said, yeah, you're going to need a good lawyer because otherwise you're going to be in deep trouble. <laughs> and um, uh, they introduced me to, um, you know, Gunderson, uh, Detmer, who I still sort of work with today. Um, Steve Franklin, who runs the fund formation sort of part of the firm, um, you know, I, I would say looks back fondly at the... Um, almost nine years we've been working together and how many times you saved my ass. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so having all this this support allowed uh, me to sort of, uh, form uh, SoftTech VC2 uh, pretty uh, pretty efficiently and, you know, we raised, uh, we raised the fund very quickly and then we um, uh, we got in business uh, in, uh, in September of 2007, I remember. Um, so I was going to speak at the um, uh, TechCrunch 40 conference. That was when we were um, going to launch Mint. Mint was one of my um, Android investments. And for yeah. those folks that don't know, Mint was <clears throat> revolutionary in the, in the field of, I guess, personal finance for folks. Um, I, I was a user. Mm -hmm. I loved it. Um, now they've since had competitors kind of come into this space, but you were one of the first folks to kind of recognize the potential there, and yeah, and obviously a very successful. And it transformed, company. yeah, as you said, yeah. it transformed the, uh, the personal finance space by by having people actually hand over the um, the passwords of their bank accounts. Yep, which which is sort of insane, revolutionary at the time, for absolutely, sure, absolutely, absolutely insane. And I remember sort of my lawyer saying. What do you mean you're going to talk about your fund? Like what? What? And I, and I spoke to all these people sort of the morning of of me going on stage with what I could say, what I couldn't say, and so on and so forth. It was it was really so interesting. Um, and you know, I will, um, so Jason Kanakanis was gonna you know uh, ask me a few questions about the announcement in the fund, and I was just. Um, got on stage with a mint shirt, which was absolutely forbidden, but I just, you know, <laughs> hacked my way into like promoting mint. Uh, they, they won't take on for it, not because of my right, shirt, but right, uh, right. because they, were, they had an awesome product. Um, and we announced, you know, this $15 million fund that was going to do uh, 20 investments per year, you know, 100 to 250K and so on and so forth. And and the um, the feedback at that time was, you know, who cares, who does that? Like a $15 million fund doesn't make any sense. Like, And and we, we I think at that time, we're still sort of perceived as, you know, sort of um, uh, something that would fade very quickly, right? So we'd raise a fund, would fail, and then and then go away. And I think fund two was really this transition from being an angel to actually 
really implementing a real micro VC strategy, which we did, you know, with Fund 3, Fund 4, um, as mm -hmm. we are now. And it was still like, hey, you know, if I like a deal, I would do 100K. If I love the deal, I would do 250K. You should only invest when you love uh, sort of what the company is doing and the founders, uh, who the founders are. Um, so that one, Seeded, uh, Fitbit, uh, Eventbrite, uh, Sandgren, a bunch of others. That's the one also that said no to uh, Uber, that said no to Airbnb, that said no to Pinterest. So, you know, all in all, um, pretty good track <laughs> record could have been better. Um, wait, wait, let's, let's pause there. So, um, for folks in the audience, um, you know, who aren't familiar with these companies, uh, you threw out Fitbit mm -hmm. as an example, which uh, IPO'd last year, mm -hmm. uh, around June. Yep, um, of June. What kind of exit was that for for you guys? I think it's it's public information. Um, I think you guys own like three and a half percent or so. We own three and a half percent of Fitbit uh, between the two funds. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, another piece of validation. This was a very successful exit. And it's funny um, the mentality of someone in, in in your position. These companies, you know, oftentimes look very attractive. It's hard to know. I guess you have to go with your gut. Um, you, you threw out, you know, Pinterest and Uber and other deals you looked at that at the time you just weren't ready to, to make that commitment. So talk a little bit about what needs to be in the gut of a VC to make these decisions where, you know, sometimes you miss out on these huge deals. Sometimes you're part of it. At the end of the day, what does it boil down to for you mm -hmm. when you're making these decisions? So I think it's, you know, you're going to look at several, you, you, you try and sort of turn this into um, uh, a science, but at the end of the day, it's kind of a, an art, right? So you're going to look at uh, the fundamentals. So who the founders are, what's their background, what's their experience? Uh, do they have a unique uh, sort of point of view, an unfair advantage, uh, which gives them an opportunity to really build something unique uh, in an industry, either that they're, you know, part of or they're creating, which was the case with Fitbit. Um, you look at the, the product and whether it's really sort of differentiated. You look at the industry and say, well, can they build something which, if it works, can become, you know, a multi-billion dollar company? Because at the end of the day, the, um, the VC industry uh, really works on hits. If you don't have a monster hit that returns, you know, 50, 100 times your capital, it's going to be very hard to have a, uh, uh, you know, a really well-performing fund. And so you need to find those sort of unique opportunities, unique, you know, sort of outcomes that will really generate, you know, massive returns. Um, and everything we do is super early and early, right? There's very, very little sort of data that, especially at the time when I was investing Fund 2, where I was, you know, investing even earlier than I do now with, uh, with our Fund 4, uh, which, is, which is sort of... I explained, you mm -hmm. know, but larger, mm -hmm. slightly larger checks and slightly uh, later stage, uh, still seed, but later stage. Um, and so you look at what the company has built, you know, which is either sort of a very rough, you know, prototype or product, which is out in alpha or beta. And you can, you try and draw as, as much insight as you can. Um, and, you know, just look at the merit of, of the opportunity that you're presented with. So, um, I think uh, Airbnb was still airbed and breakfast mm -hmm. and it was still go to a conference and sleep in someone's home, you know, on an airbed because mm -hmm. it's cheaper. Mm -hmm. And, <laughs> you know, the thing I missed was how how good the, um, the founders were. And, 
you know, uh, my good friend Sam Angus, who's a, who's a lawyer at Fenwick, who, um, who's um, Airbnb's lawyer, who just uh, said, you absolutely should meet those guys. They're so awesome. And at the end, you know, I sort of said, okay, fine, I'll meet with them. And it was too late right. by the time I sort of met. Um, so it's always... The problem is that we have this massive funnel of opportunities that come to us, you know, 2,500, 3,000 companies or more, you know, will sort of hit us. And we have to very efficiently pass through that funnel to figure out who we should be spending time with, right? So there's already a barrier to meeting with us because we, we can't meet 3,000 companies a year, right? right. We're right. a team of three. I was, I was a team of one at the right. time. Right. I did 90 investments on my own, mm. right, before I partnered, I partnered up. So you have to basically say, well, I just look at the material, I just look at the opportunity, and it just doesn't make any sense to me. And this concludes part one of the Jeff Clavier episode of the Series B Show, hosted by me, Brandon Jones. Hope you enjoyed it. Please tune in for part two, where Jeff uh, talks about his framework for choosing companies, the characteristics he looks for in his ideal founder, big flame-out stories like Fab.com and Homejoy, which raised a bunch of money and ultimately failed as companies, how he's been interacting and how he thinks about accelerators and incubators like Y Combinator, his perspective on today's tech industry, um, cool technologies he's excited about, such as artificial intelligence and virtual reality, and his thoughts on the lack of diversity in tech. So hope you enjoyed the show. Look forward to you tuning into part two. And always remember, be true, be you.